Who knows what today is? Well, that's not the answer I'm looking for. Today is actually the eve of Chicken Soup for Your Soul Day, national holiday. So really? today's the eve of that. So tomorrow <laughs> I'll have some chicken soup and read the book. But no, seriously, you're right. Uh, today is Veterans Day. And uh, Rusk was so kind to ask me to kind of be a very brief advocate of the veteran community here. Um, I was thinking as I was driving here, this is not like a new message to any of us, right? I mean, if you're in college, like you're a freshman, right? 9-11 happened when what? You were not even 10? Is that right? I was, I think, uh, I was senior in high school when 9-11 took place. So this is not new, right? So I'm not going to tell anything deep and brooding uh, to all of you. But what I wanted to share was, first of all, uh, I'm not just a guy here with like a Captain America haircut. Um, <laughs> I actually, uh, I did spend some time in the military. Uh, my name is John Pritchard. I used to be a captain. Um, I had to prove it, so that's me. Great. Um, so anyways, um, I, I guess when it comes to veterans, right, there's over 20,000 actually physiological, like injured, wounded veterans in this country. Right, and that could be from anyone in any one of our demographics, whether you are um, a baby boomer, you're in college, or you're out of college like a guy like me a few years ago. Um, But even more than that, I think there's some invisible wounds in this community that we are unaware of, unless you are one of those select few who have that, and that's the PTSD, which is, again, not a new message. But you know, like, what that number even stands, like where it stands in our country? Someone give me just a quick ballpark number. Zero? Okay, I'll throw you one. All right, it's 475,000 people, right? So that's almost half a million people that are kind of plagued with this, with their experience. But um, beyond that goes their service and their families. Um, Just a second ago, there's a picture of my wife and I. Um, Jalen is not here. She's actually on her way from the hospital. She works there, so she's not like in the ER. But um, where is she? Hey, there she is. Great. (laughs) Um, So anyways... um, I was thinking about this veteran community here, and this is a community that is amazing. Um, I think about my grandfather, who served in World War II, didn't talk to his wife for two years. I mean, seriously. If you're a married man or a married woman, not talking to your spouse for two years, not knowing what their status is besides letters, I mean, that brings reality home so fast, doesn't it? Right? I mean, I had the luxury of having Skype when I was in Iraq for a year, so I thought that was hard. Then I think of my father who served 20-some-odd years, and that's just incredible, the sacrifice he gave. So whatever your position is, whether you are someone who has served, maybe you're against the military, that's totally fine. But uh, I'm just thankful that there are some times that aside in this country that we can actually observe the sacrifice of time, energy, or lives on the altar of freedom so we can be here together. Um, so what I want to do is, if there's anyone here who has served or is going to serve, like ROTC, that means you got a contract, you're going to do it anyways, um, or you're retired, veteran status, we want to quickly acknowledge you really quick. So go ahead and stand. All right, let's give them a round. So uh, thank you, everyone, for all of your service, the time and energy that you've sacrificed so we could be here in the clothes we are and the safety that we are uh, in today, and we can worship here freely. Thanks, Russ. Thanks, John. Uh, as you know, we are in the midst of uh, Elephant Series. I'm going to put the slide up for questions. We've been receiving questions in uh, through texting all series long. In just a couple weeks now, we will be addressing as many of those as possible over uh, a period of two services. Um, it'll happen on the 26th, if my dates are correct, 25th. 
uh, the end of November. Um, so we're looking forward to that, but it'll be a chance to try to answer any of those questions. So if you have questions today, feel free to text those in, and we'll make sure that we, uh, we get after them. What I want to do is start off this morning with uh, a question. It's not a trick question. For most of you, it'll be a very simple question, but it's a question nonetheless. What color is this? Purple, right? Now, you might look at that and go, okay, that's a stupid way to start. What are we even talking about the color purple for? Well, here's why we're talking about the color purple. My daughter, Evie, is three. Right now, Evie is in the midst of learning all kinds of things. She's learning like uh, animal noises, animals. She's learning uh, numbers and letters. She's trying to like, get a grasp of all of that stuff. And one of the things she's trying to learn are her colors. Now, the challenging thing is uh, we'll go through a book of colors, and uh, we'll point to one, and she'll try to memorize the page more than the color even. But we'll, we'll keep going, and we go, and she doesn't get any of them right until we get to, like, purple, because she's kind of memorized that one. And so she's like, purple, yay, well, let's start again. And so, like, we go, we go through them again, and what I'm starting to notice is you point to, like, yellow, and she thinks it's... Red, you point to red, she thinks it's green, you point to... And she's getting all of her colors mixed up. Now, there's one of three logical conclusions that are coming into my head. Conclusion number one is, she wants her dad to just look like an idiot, and so she's pulling his leg really hard. <laughs> and going, oh, I know what this is, but I'm just going to like play with you, Dad, and, and you're going to get a kick out of it. The second one is, she's so early in the game of trying to figure out what the colors are that... She just hasn't quite got it down yet. The third, which is the one I'm trying to like test a little bit more with her, is, is she in some way colorblind? Is she not quite catching colors the way that most of us do when we see them? And so I'll point to like a green object and say, hey, check this out. Can you point to something else that's green on the page? And like nine out of ten times, not a chance. And it struck me the other day as we're going through colors, again with her, that, um, that my daughter may, or may not, might just be uh, a stage, but she may or may not grow up with the inability to differentiate color. But she'll do so in a world that is far from colorblind. We're talking about the subject of racism this morning, and racism in the church. And uh, it's a challenging subject, one that I think deserves a lot of attention let me uh, take a quick show of hands, okay? How many of you have heard in a church, not necessarily this one, but in a church of any kind, a talk on racism? Raise your hand nice and high. Like three, four, five or so of you? Okay. I've been asked several times when we put together the list of uh, subjects we would cover, why racism? Why do we even need to talk about racism? Is this even an elephant? Is this something that needs to be talked about? Well, we sit in a church in a room full of people in which only six of us have ever heard a talk on this particular subject. I, I say that to say a couple of things. One, this is obviously something we don't typically talk about in the church. I think we don't talk about it sometimes in Christianity by and large, and then at other times I don't think we talk about it in our culture. We just want to try to ignore it. The second reason that I bring it up is because for some of you, 
This will be the greatest sermon you've ever heard on racism. Because <laughs> it's your only one, okay? So, um, not setting the bar too high, I recognize I have a lot of faults, a lot of problems when it comes into giving this particular talk. I'm probably not the one that you would choose if there was anyone to choose to speak on this subject. It might not be me. I started thinking through what are some of my flaws. One, I'm a privileged white male. Okay, that's inherent problem number one. Number two, I grew up in the North. I'm a child of the North that experienced probably less racial tensions as I was growing up than others. I grew up just outside of Scranton, Pennsylvania. I uh, live in a fairly monochromatic city called Spokane. All right? We don't have major, major diversity in this particular city. And then I'm also, uh, I am part of a multiracial family. So I know that I come with baggage. I come um, at it with a certain angle, and I think all of us come to this particular subject with, with baggage. So here's what my uh, hope is to do this morning. I want to do three things. I want to acknowledge that there is a problem. Uh, maybe a problem that we don't like to talk about, and it is a present-day problem. Secondly, I want to highlight what I think is an uneasy tension. And then third, I want to look at some practical gospel responses. That's my hope or my goal for this morning. Now, I think some of us would acknowledge in the room, and others maybe not, that racism is alive and well today in America and beyond. I think some of us have a hard time maybe acknowledging that, but it's true, it's reality. What I wanted to do really quick is to highlight the fact that it's not just individualistic, but also uh, corporate. And so I wanted to start with highlighting a couple specific examples of current racism that has all happened over the last, like, two months. Now, some of you, the images or the words will be pretty offensive. My intent is just to reveal that this is, in fact, reality in our current culture. All right? First picture is a picture of a man in England who was chanting toward the player that you see in the screen. For that gesture, he was arrested. This is a gesture that happens quite frequently across Europe related to players of a different ethnicity. He was abusing a player on another team. This happens today. This happened a week ago. Here's another example before we show the picture. Um, how many of you are familiar with the book, The Hunger Games? Okay, I figured a few more than heard about racism. Um, you you uh, have maybe even seen the movie, okay? It has been a popular movie. It came out just a, a couple months ago. Uh, in the wake of it coming out, uh, one of the challenges that seemed to be a challenge across the Internet was the fact that certain characters did not look the way people envisioned they would look in reading the book. I don't know if you're aware of that controversy. Uh, there's a few tweets that I've taken from Twitter and just made them into pictures. You'll be able to see the picture. I'm not going to read them, but you'll be able to read them from the screen. These are actual tweets from actual people about the actual movie. Got it? Here we go. We'll just roll through three or four of them. They're talking about one specific character 
As you can see, those images should be startling, frustrating to all of us. But racism is alive and well in our context. It happens throughout the world, and it happens in America. It happens about current culture, and it should absolutely bother us. And the gospel speaks to this quite a bit. There is overt racism, which you just saw sight of, but I believe maybe even a greater issue is what I will call subtle racism. Subtle racism. Racism that is woven itself into the very fabric of our society. A lot of times when we think of it, we think of it just as these overt, out there kind of examples, but racism really is um, quite different. Let me give you two that I think apply to a large majority of our context, okay? The first one is called uh, the transparency phenomenon. I don't know if, how many of you are familiar with the transparency phenomenon, but it is this. It's an unconscious racism wherein people like myself, white people, fail to acknowledge white culture while at the same time acknowledging all other culture. What I mean is you see certain dress and you think of a culture. You see certain food you think of a different culture. You see, hear certain music, you think of a different culture. You hear of uh, certain cars or the way someone drives or the lateness of a person or all these other factors, and we attribute them to culture or to ethnicity, right? But the one group that we don't do that often with, or basically at all with, is white people. That's the transparency phenomenon. So maybe the defining characteristic of whiteness is the fact that we think we're transparent and don't have any racial characteristics. That would be an example of transparency phenomenon. Barbara Flagg makes this statement, that there is a tendency of whites not to think about whiteness or about norms, behaviors, experiences, or perspectives that are white-specific. Basically what that means is we see white culture as neutral, as raceless as normal. So we would, could probably say that white people don't think that what they do is white, they just think it's right. There's a tendency for us to look through our lens and not understand the gravity of the issue. Second thing is inherent privilege. Racism, I think, shows up in inherent privilege. Now, let me give you a little game. You know I like games. We've played some recently. So here's another game we'll play. It's uh, called Are You Privileged? It's similar to You Might Be a Redneck, okay? So I don't know if you've played that before, but this is, this is a game we'll play. Now, if you can assume that in general American history class will include the voices and experiences of your racial group, then you may be privileged. If you've never been followed around in a store, then you may be privileged. If you do not have to worry about your own daily physical protection, then you may be among the privileged. If English is your first language, then you may be among the privileged. If uh, most people... Let's see if the next one... Click on the next one. If you ask to talk to the person in charge, most often you're facing a person of your gender or race, then you may be among the privileged. If a traffic cop pulls you over, then you can be sure that you haven't been singled out because of your race, 
you may be among the privileged. If you can be late to a meeting without the lateness being attributed to your race. If you never ask to speak for all of the people of your racial group, you may be among the privileged. And if you can choose not to think about how race affects you on a daily basis, then you may be among the privileged. I think I speak as someone who is privileged to a group of people that a majority of us would be categorized as privileged. See, racism is ingrained in our culture. It is both overt and subtle. But I think racism has also moved into our faith. Let me give you a couple examples. In 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. made this statement, It is appalling that the most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. That is a slap in the face, really. 1963, 50 years later, and one could argue that 9 o'clock to noon on Sunday is still the most segregated time in America. There's something between 5% and 7.5% of all churches. Only that percentage could be classified as racially diverse. And racially diverse, to be classified as that, only 20% of the average attenders would need to be of a different ethnicity than the dominant culture. That's 5% of all churches in America. What's interesting is racial fragmentation is definitely a part of our culture, definitely a part of the church even, and maybe the biggest issue is that we don't even seem to see it as a problem. Oh, well, that's just the way it is. Different people go to different churches. I think it's also crept into our Bible stories. I don't know how many of you have kids, but when you get kids, you tend to get a little Bible either given to you early on, or you purchase it, and it has like all these Bible stories that have been like toned down to kid age, you know? Like you don't want people growing up believing that, you know, when Noah got on the ark, like everyone but eight people died. You don't really want to talk about that. So what you do is you like write the story in a way that little kids like it. But what's interesting is how we picture those stories as well. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but this is a, an example. This is just from the Bible story. This is Eve. Yeah, she's lovely. Lovely, Eve. I'm sure that's exactly what she looked like. Here's a picture of Esther. Yeah, Esther. Middle Eastern Esther. Coming to her king. Yeah. And then um, here's another one. Mary and Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, that's your blonde hair, blue eyed, eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus right there, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so we, we tend to do that, but I think we also do that with pictures of Jesus. Like, just specifically him. Like, I think we, most of Christianity has studied the Scriptures so much that they've come to the conclusion that Jesus was white. In spite of his Middle Eastern ancestry, we still, somehow, would go, well, totally. I mean, it's obvious. He's white, he's got long brown hair, and some blue eyes that are piercing. That's Jesus. That's the way it works, right? So if you do a little Google search, this is what comes up. Jesus so obvious, right? 
Or if you go to this, this is what I think this next one is the most often how you picture Jesus. You know, this is what I would call the pale, skinny, effeminate Prada model Jesus, right? <laughs> that's that's kind of how we, we view Jesus. We, we shape Jesus into our own image. Here's what's interesting. This is a picture of an early Aramaic rendering of Jesus. I bet that causes different feelings and emotions in some of us. Like he would look more like people we're at war with currently than he would like our Jesus. Or here's another one. Try showing this one in Sunday school class. I mean, 9 out of 10 kids, well, probably 10 out of 10 kids, are going to guess all kinds of things. What they probably will not guess is Jesus. What they did is a scientific study on Jewish men at the time of Jesus, and this is their best guess as to what he would have looked like had we actually taken a picture. Jesus. But that's far from the Jesus we tend to think about. See, racism has been a part of culture. It's been a part of the way we even depict the church and the stories of the scriptures. But it's not just new with us. It has been around since the time of Jesus. In fact, last week I shared a particular passage with you out of Luke 4. I'll I'll throw the passage up there again. In uh, Luke chapter 4, Jesus is speaking. He comes into the temple. He declares to all the people, here's why I've showed up on the scene. And he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I'm proclaiming good news to the poor. The year of Jubilee is here. He goes through this grand thing. And everybody, it says, cheers. They're excited. They're so thrilled. They're like, oh man, could this be the Messiah? This is amazing. And then what Jesus does is what he often does, is he kind of pushes the envelope a little bit, and he says to all of them, hey, just so you know, what this is talking about, and this Messiah, this Jesus you hear about, the Gentiles, those that don't have the same faith as you, those who are outside of your race, those who live in different foreign lands, they will accept this good news before you. That's what Jesus says to everyone, which then there wasn't even any more applause. The text says that what happens is everybody stands up, they grab Jesus, they usher Him to the edge of the town in the attempts to throw Him over the cliff. And He escapes. They they get confronted with the reality that people of a different culture, of a different ethnicity, of a different color, of a different language will receive the good news of the Gospel before them and they're shocked to the point where they say, well then, let's just get rid of all of it because it isn't worth it. What a response. I mean, that is the biblical initial response to Jesus saying it goes beyond just the Jewish people. All of this should create in us some uneasy tensions. I just want to highlight an uneasy tension, and that is this, that I think we often view in the church racism as just an individual thing, rather than a systemic or corporate thing. We see it just as an individual thing, rather than an institutional or corporate thing. We want to make it just individual. We want it to be as simple as that, but it's much broader than that. I want to go through just a couple quick things related to this idea of racism being a system. 
Racism can be defined like this. It's a system of advantage based on race. That is often how it is defined. But see, if we start to see it as a system, if we see it as systemic rather than just individual, it causes us to ask a different set of questions. Now, when it comes to the way the church typically handles justice or mission or going on mission trips or providing charity to the poor, what often happens across the board, and I'm not saying this in every case, but in generality, what we as the church have often done is we have taken charity to mean go and provide a fish for someone, right? You hear the expression, give someone a fish. Meet the tangible need. Deal with the issue at hand. Now, over time, the church has begun to realize, and organizations have begun to realize, that if you just give someone a fish, that's not enough, right? So the grand mantra was developed, no, no, don't just give a fish, teach people how to fish, right? How many of you have heard that before? A majority of you. You've heard that expression. It's beautiful. It takes it to that next level. Let's leave people with the resources available to do something about their need. But I think that still sees it as individualistic rather than systemic. Here are the questions that should be asked instead, or the questions that could be asked in addition. Why can't all people fish at this pond? Or how come people don't have equal access to fishing equipment? Or, how come it costs so much to get a fishing license? Don't just teach people to fish. Figure out why it is, even with the ability to fish, they still don't get to fish. Why is the system in place, and how is the system creating the problem? I think that's a question that, as gospel people, we have to begin to answer. And we've got to begin to ask it first. Here's another uh, maybe more practical illustration than fishing, because I don't know how many of you fish, is the prison system in America. I don't know how familiar you are with the prison system in America, but here's one particular statistic that might stand out to you. I'll show you a quick slide. Here's the racial breakdown in prisons throughout America. One in six white men, or one in 106 white men are behind bars. One in 36 Hispanic men are behind bars and one in 15 black men are behind bars. Another statistic will tell you that over the course of a lifetime, one out of every three black or African-American men in America will be incarcerated at some point. You have to ask the question, why is this the case? We have to ask those questions. Here's a question that maybe brings it a little bit closer to home for us. How come the graduation rate, the joblessness, and the substance abuse among Native Americans is different than that of the surrounding culture? Well, you can't just blame it on one idea or one simple thing and just go, well, that's just the way it is. No. These things have historic reasons as well as contemporary reasons. And for us to ignore those reasons or just to go, hey, it's an individual thing rather than a system thing, I think, in many ways, is naive. Miguel de la Torre makes this statement, and we'll move on to the corporate idea. He says this, If conversion, if coming to Jesus, does not establish justice-based relationships with God and fellow human beings, then salvation hasn't taken place. Bold statement. Simply stated, one cannot be a Christian and remain complicit with social structures that privilege whiteness, wealth, and maleness. 
He's making a very hard statement. But we do have to ask the question, where does our ignorance of the matter actually make us complicit with the problem? Next, we have to understand corporate responsibility. So first, we have to understand that there's a system that's in place, but I also think we have to understand corporate responsibility. I'll try to make this really quick. I would love to spend a lot of time on it, but we don't have the time to be able to do it. But I think one of the biggest problems in American Christianity related to the subject of sin is the belief that sin, your sin, is only individual and affects only you individually. That's a problem. We just try to make it just about me and Jesus and making sure everything between me and Jesus is okay. And if we're okay, then everything else is okay. But that's not really the case. But some of us will sit here and go, no, 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 no. You can't take the responsibility of a different time and place it on me. Nor can you take the responsibility of someone else and place it on me. Right? Because that's corporate. We're not corporate. We're individuals. So let me just give you a couple of biblical illustrations. First being Joshua 7. How many of you have heard the story of Achan? Okay, Achan. If you don't know the story, read it. Joshua chapter 7. They go into the land. It looks like I have to explain this one a little longer. He steals something. He steals something that he wasn't supposed to take. They're not supposed to touch any of the, the, uh, the, all the stuff that's available after they go in and raid the land. And so he does. He takes it, hides it under his tent. The punishment, death for him, right? No, for him, for his wife, for his kids, their parents, everybody, the whole family, gone. You go, whoa, time out, time out. He was the one that did the sin. He was the one that broke the rule, not the whole family. It's, again, because we view it through the individual lens, not through the corporate lens. In a familial, honor-shame-based community, people would understand that what happens to one member of the family reflects on the whole family. That is the way the scriptures would understand it, and that's the way that many people in other cultures would understand it, other than our culture. So, that's an example. Daniel 9 would be another example. Daniel, he confesses, he asks forgiveness, he says, I am guilty for all of the sins of the people of my history. He takes on the responsibility of another generation and says, it's my fault. He takes the responsibility of his generation and says, it's my fault. It's similar to William Wilberforce, many of you have heard of him, who made the statement before uh, the government. He said, I do not mean to accuse anyone, but I take the same upon myself in common, indeed with the whole parliament of Great Britain, for having suffered this horrid trade to be carried under our authority. We are all guilty. Now he himself was not responsible for anything, and yet he was a part of it and claimed guilt for it. If you look throughout the scriptures, Jeremiah, Ezra, Nehemiah, they all claim guilt based on the broader consequences, not just their own individual sin. Another example would be Romans 5. Maybe you've heard of this particular passage from Paul. He says this, I'll keep it really short. One man sinned, therefore all sinned. Right? One man sinned, therefore all sinned. That means Adam sinned, and who gets credit for it? All of us. We all do, right? That, that's the gospel. If we don't believe there's a corporate responsibility, if we don't believe that it goes beyond just ourselves, then we've missed 
the baseline of the gospel. That then one man came, Jesus, who did what? Covered it for everyone, right? Again, credit for all. Got it? So, that leads us to this. I want to give just a couple gospel responses that I think are important for us. And I'm going to do it um, out of Luke, or uh, excuse me, John chapter 4. If you want, you can turn there. Otherwise, I'm just going to show the verses up front. But in John chapter 4, there's the story of the woman at the well. Many of you are familiar with it. Jesus uh, is leaving one region. He's going to another region. He goes through Samaria, sees the woman at the well in Samaria. The, um, just for the sake of time, we won't read the whole text. But I'll say just two things about this text that I think highlight this idea of how we are supposed to or called to handle this issue of racism. The first one is this. The gospel encourages proximity and presence. The gospel encourages proximity and presence. Here's what I mean by that. The the passage in the text says, He left Judah and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. What's interesting to me is the wording of this particular passage. The culture says that the Jews hated the Samaritans. In fact, they would walk, many of them, two to three days around Samaria to get to where they needed to go as opposed to going through it. We don't want to be a part of them. We'll walk around. Okay? That was culture. That's how they lived. That's the basic uh, premise of this passage. And what it says about Jesus is that He had to go through Samaria. The answer is not that He had to go through Samaria. It's that He chose to go through Samaria. He didn't have to to get there. In fact, almost nobody went through to get there. What he did is he chose to go through. That's a pretty fascinating thing. What he's doing is choosing to put himself in the presence of people who are not like him. In fact, that's what the incarnation is all about. God, not like us at all, chooses to come, be like us, be among us, spend time with us, relate to us, in a way that He can then take upon Himself the sin for all of us. I think one of the ways that we have to live into this idea of being gospel people in the midst of racism is to be people who are willing to be in proximity and presence of those that are unlike us. That makes make space for people in your life. And I'm not just talking about race, I'm also talking about classes. Okay? Economic strata. In all of these things, make space for other people. Adjust your life. Invite someone over to your house. Last Thanksgiving, I got to eat it with um, Imad, one of my good friends, Imad Muhammad, and I sat next to each other at Thanksgiving. He had never had Thanksgiving before. He had never had... I mean, we had like, like 30 people over. They all brought different food. And he's just going, I've never had this. This is amazing. And he's just like... Just gobbling it up. I mean, it was so fun. But he's telling his stories of their culture and we're learning. And he's learning stories of our culture. And together, beautiful. you got to make space for it. You have to make time for it. You have to lean into the idea of proximity and presence. The second and final thing is this. The gospel recognizes that it's not about race, but rather about identity. The gospel recognizes that it's not about race, but identity. What's interesting in this passage is, it says this in John 4, 7-9, to 
A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? It's amazing, isn't it? That immediately what happens, Jesus says, Hey, can I have some water? And she goes, Whoa, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. She instantly brings up race. Instantly brings it up. Hey, I, no, we, we, this doesn't work this way. This is not how it goes. Why, why is this interaction happening? Why are we doing this? It's, it's similar to in James chapter 2. The story is told in James chapter 2. Uh, if a rich man comes into your church building, and a poor man also comes in, and you say to the rich man, sit over here, but to the more poor man you say, go stand over there, you are worthy of being a judge with evil thoughts and intents. Too often, we jump straight to race or we jump straight to class. That's our default so often. It's the default in this particular passage. And what Jesus does is he goes, goes, pause, hold there for a second. It's not about that. And then he starts to talk about identity. And he says, there will come a day when all of us will worship together in unity and in spirit and in truth. And we will all be one. And it's Jesus, me, saying to her, I am the answer to all of that. Your identity is no longer found in your race. Your identity is no longer found in your economic status. Your identity is not found in any other characteristic that people could label you by. Your identity is now found in me. That The identity of true gospel people is an understanding that we have been justified by God, we have been called by God, we are now a part of the family of God, that we are a part of the body of Christ, that we are one. And that everything reflects that. The way we act, the way we talk, the way we relate, everything reflects this idea, or should, that we are all find our identity, our true identity in Jesus Christ. That makes us all one. In Acts chapter 17, said, God made from one every nation or every ethnic group in the original text, of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having to determine their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Ortiz makes this statement, the church's task is neither to destroy nor maintain ethnic identities, but to replace them with a new identity in Christ that is more foundational than earthly identities. It is a brotherhood, a sisterhood. It is a oneness. It is a family. I think part of a practical outworking of that is this. To see their problems as my problems and my problems as their problems. Too often what we do is we separate again. And we say, well, the problems of this particular economic group or the problems of this particular race are their problem and not my problem. In the brotherhood and in the sisterhood and in the oneness of Jesus, we're all one. Their problems are my problems. My problems are their problems. Your problems are my problems. My problems are your problems. That's the way it works. It's the way it should work. So, poor education, dropout rates, unwanted pregnancies, joblessness, violence, abuse, the list goes on and on, are our problem. The church's problem. We can't say, well, that was the church back then. No, this is the church now. And whatever history the church has is now your history. And wherever the church failed, is now where I've failed and where I'm responsible to continue to move as a people of God. That's your calling too. This is the subject of racism.
Hopefully this morning gets the ball rolling. We begin to talk about it in groups. We begin to kind of lean into what does it look like to be one? Because Jesus said, the world will know when the world knows we are one. 